God in electing Israel, their unbelief does not mean he has abandoned Israel. God in electing Israel, choosing them to be the nation of the world, to be his chosen people, their unbelief does not mean that he's abandoned them. Why? Because he is a promise-keeping God. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of Romans chapter 9, and today we continue to touch on a subject that always raises a lot of interest, predestination and election. In a message entitled, Predestined to Hell, Pastor Brogy examines two opposing schools of theology, Arminianism and Calvinism. Let's join Dr. Brogy now. People come to some of the false conclusions that they do concerning Romans 9 is because they do not interpret it in light of the Old Testament text. If you look down at Romans 9, you'll see a lot of capital letters, all caps. And in the New American Standard, different publishers, different translators or translations, NIV, ESV, different groups do it differently. But in the NASB, they put it in all caps when it's an Old Testament quotation. And if you look down on the page, there's a lot of them here in this chapter of Scripture. And so critical to understanding Romans 9 is understanding the Old Testament quotations that he is going to make. So we read here in verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. Through Isaac your descendants will be named. That's a quotation from the book of Genesis. Now, let's go back, take your Bible, and turn to Genesis 12. We're going to look at 12, 15, 17, 18, and 21. So your time in turning there will definitely be worth it. Go to Genesis 12. The quotation that Paul makes here is from Genesis 21, but I want you to understand the flow of the argument and the context in which uh, this quotation is made. When you come to Genesis 12, based on some divine commentary the New Testament gives us, we know that God has already appeared to Abraham. You wouldn't know that simply from reading the Genesis account. Now, you might infer it from the end of 11 where it talks about how he left Ur of Chaldee, but we learn in Acts 7 when Stephen preaches that great sermon that God had already appeared to Abraham and told him to get up and go to the place that he was going to show him. And so when you come to chapter 12 and verse 1, he's not in Ur of Chaldee, he's in a place called Haran. And God comes to him a second time. Notice verse 1, Go forth from your country and your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And then God makes Abram a promise beginning here in verse 2. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. For in you, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families on planet earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. Why? Because through the Jewish people came the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he makes a promise concerning his seed, but he makes a second promise concerning a piece of real estate. We call it the promised land. Look at Genesis 12 and verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Now, years later, if you know the Genesis account, after a detour down there in Egypt, you will recall that there's a range war of sorts between the cowboys of Lot and the cowboys of Abraham, and they're forced to separate. 
And after they do, God appears to Abram and God makes a promise a second time. Turn over a page to Genesis 13. Genesis 13 and look at verse 15. Here's the third appearance that God makes to Abram. In verse 15, God says, for all the land which you see, he's up on this bluff, he can see this marvelous piece of property. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants and underscore the final word, forever. I'll turn over another page to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. God appears a fourth time and he once again promises a piece of real estate to him. Genesis 15 and verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So you can't re read these verses without realizing that the land is an important part of this deal, this covenant, this promise that God made with the people of Israel. It's a little piece of land, not much bigger than the state of Delaware, but it's on the news every day and not by accident. There's only 15 approximately million, some put it at 13 or 14 million, but generously 15 million Jews on the planet out of seven plus billion people. And rarely a week goes by when we don't hear and have to be confronted about this people. Why? Because salvation history comes through the Jewish people and it comes on this piece of property. It is here that Messiah dies and it is here that he will literally, physically, actually come again and touch his feet to the Mount of Olives. And so God made a promise to Abram for his descendants to enjoy. If you look in verses 19 to 21, you see there's a problem. There's 10 pagan nations who uh, live in this land. The Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadamite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, the Jebusite, and the Mosquito Bite. Now, that's not really there, but... Um, <laughs> But in verse 8, Abram, knowing the problem and the challenge, he asked an honest question. He said, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Now, this is not a question of unbelief. This is simply a request for some assurance. Oh, God, I'd like to know more. Tell me how I can possess it. Give me some of the specifics. And God understands that Abraham is not questioning his integrity. Sometimes we pray like that. We say, God, I want to do your will. I want to be right in the center of it, but give me some affirmation, give me some assurance, give me some specifics that I know right now that you're directing my steps. So Abraham says, in effect, oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And so God answers him with a visual aid. And what we're going to look at is critically important to how you will approach Romans 9. So pay attention, verse 9. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Now, in ancient days, there were several ways in which to initiate a contract or a covenant. There are salt covenants. Here is a covenant that you cut, cutting a covenant, where you would take these animals, you would cut them in two, you'd lay some on this side, some on that side, and then the two people making an agreement would walk through them. It was much stronger than a handshake. You, in essence, said, as I walk through these animals, if I do not do what I promise, then you can do to me what we've done to these animals. And if you want to see an illustration of that, go home and read Jeremiah chapter 34. So Abraham, he, he cuts the animals in half. He uh, sets them on both sides. 
And during the day, he's swatting off the vultures that want to come and eat them. The birds of prey, verse 11, came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now, don't miss the picture. All day long, he's swatting off these vultures. And I believe it's a picture of what God just told him is going to happen to Israel, that they are going to be oppressed for 400 years down in Egypt. But notice what happens in verse 17. Here's the critical thing. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. So God puts Abram into a deep, deep sleep, and then he appears to him in this dream. And a smoking oven and a flaming torch are symbols of God used in several places in the Old Testament. And so normally when you cut a covenant, both people are awake, both people walk through the center. But on this occasion, Abram is sound asleep. And in this vision, he sees this a manifestation of God, this theophany, as we would call it, where God walks between the two animal parts. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to keep my promise. And this particular deal that I'm cutting with you, Abraham, is not dependent on you. It's what we, we call a unilateral covenant. It is dependent on me and not you. And so, turn again to Genesis now, chapter 17. Chapter 17. God has just assured him that this covenant is based on his gracious and generous heart. And in Genesis 17, and notice now, if you will, verse 4, God said, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I have made you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Now look at verse 7 very carefully. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Circle in your mind that word everlasting. This covenant is not cut just for Abram, but for Abram's descendants, for all the people that would come after him. This is a covenant with the Jewish people. Now, we're going to see this morning that there are some Christians who call themselves Calvinists and amillennialists, and they believe, and I'll show you before we're done with this section, but we'll touch on it today, they believe that God no longer has a plan for the nation of Israel that there's no significance to the Jewish people at all. But this text of Scripture speaks of an everlasting covenant. They would argue that the church, the body of Christ, is the new Israel, and they have usurped national Israel. But that is not going to be the argument in Genesis, nor the argument that Paul will make here in Romans 9 through 11. Now look at verse 15 here of the 17th chapter. If you remember... Um, Abraham has a seed, and at this point, he has had a relationship with his handmaid Hagar, and they had a son together called Ishmael. That was Sarah's idea, and he went after it. We read here in verse 15, Then God said to Abram, Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, my princess, but Sarah, that is princess, shall be her name. Why? Because she'll be the princess of entire nations. Verse 16, I will bless her 
And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? This is a laugh not of unbelief, as we studied in Romans 4 and the New Testament commentary that God gave us on it. It's, it it's, a, it's a laugh of amazement and shock because all along he thought that God was going to fulfill the promise to bless all the nations of the world through him, through his handmaid, because he knew that Sarah couldn't have a baby. And so God says, or Abraham says to God in verse 18, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife will bear a son and you shall call his name Yitzhak. That's Hebrew for he laughs. You'll call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and for his descendants after him. That's the plan that I have for you and Sarah Abraham. But don't worry, I've got a plan for Ishmael too. Look at verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. That tells me that Abraham had been praying about Ishmael for some time. All along, he thought Ishmael was going to be the one through whom all the nations of the world be blessed. And that's why he laughs. He's, he's just in shock. He's in utter amazement that God has a different plan for Ishmael. And he unfolds it. Notice verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Now, a few months later, if you turn over another page to Genesis 18 or just look across, if it's on the same open in verse 10, it says, I will surely return to you at this time next year. Behold, Sarah, your wife will have a son. So he says it a second time. He comes a couple months later. Now, a year later, Isaac is finally born. So go to Genesis chapter 21. Turn over another page to Genesis chapter 21. And if you remember, the boys grow, and with that comes conflict in the home. Genesis 21 and verse 5. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah uh, that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But notice God's startling response here in verse 12. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac, your descendants shall be made, named. So God knew it was impossible for both children to live under the same roof and for his will to be accomplished. The first time Abraham listened to Sarah, he should not have listened. But on this occasion, though her attitude may need some adjustment, 
She is absolutely right, and God says, listen to her. Now, it may seem unfair, may seem unfair in that Hagar had no real choice in the decision, and Ishmael didn't ask to be born into this situation. But God takes Sarah's side. God specifically says, drive out this maid and her son. And for what reason? For the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. Sarah knew they both couldn't be heirs. God could not take the families that would come from Ishmael or the families that would come from Isaac and bring the Messiah through both. God had to choose. And God made his choice. God said, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And we just read that in Romans 9, did we not? That's where this quotation comes from. Messiah couldn't come through both groups of people. He had to come through the son of promise. And the son of promise is not Ishmael, it is Isaac. And so understand, in God choosing Isaac, he's not choosing, as we're going to see in just a moment, one person to go to heaven and the other to go to hell. He is making a national selection here that through one man's lineage, through one nation of people, Messiah is going to come. And that's going to become even clearer when we look at the second example. So God says here in verse 13 of Genesis 21, and of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also because he's your descendant. And of course, God kept his promise to Ishmael. He made him a great nation. And indeed, the Arab people are seen in his line today. Now, turn a few more pages to Genesis 25. I want you to see what happens when Ishmael dies. Genesis 25. We have a little record of his death in verse 17. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. The scripture plainly says that his son, Ishmael, was gathered to his people. So while Ishmael does not share in the same blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, and that Messiah doesn't come through his line, nonetheless, God blesses this man, and the specifics here is that he was gathered to his people. What does that mean? Well, it's already been used of Abraham that Abraham was gathered to his people. In fact, when you come into the New Testament, one metaphor that God uses to describe heaven, Jesus uses it in Luke 16. It's called Abraham's bosom or paradise. And so Old Testament believing Jews went to Abraham's bosom or paradise. Abraham was a believer. He's the father of the faithful. He's the friend of all who believe. So who is Ishmael's people? Think about it. There's only two people that he has at this point who have died. One is his daddy. His name is Abraham. And he went to heaven. He went to Abraham's bosom. And the other is his mother, Hagar. Was Hagar a believer? Yes. Her conversion is described in Genesis 16. So to be gathered to his people is to be gathered to his daddy and mommy. In New Testament theology, we would say he went home to be with the Lord. Now go back to Romans 9. This is important. I want you to see that because it lays the foundation for what we are examining here this morning. Follow the flow of thought and don't get lost in the forest. 
In verses 1 to 3 of this chapter, he, he describes his burden for his Jewish brothers. And then in verses 4 and 5, he describes how God has blessed his Jewish brothers. And so in verse 6, he asks this simple question, has God's word failed? Has the rejection of the Jews in Paul's day and in our day to receive Jesus as a Savior, does that mean the promise has failed? And Paul's answer would be no, not if you believe God is sovereign. Why? Because they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That is, everyone in physical Israel is not a member of true Israel, which is why many do not believe. And then beyond that, to illustrate it further, not everyone who physically, literally descended from Abraham was a recipient of the covenant, for they are not all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Look at verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. It's not Abraham's other children by Hagar. He had Ishmael through Hagar. And then if you remember, after Sarah died, he got married again. Some of you don't know that, do you? He married Keturah. God had revitalized his body. He had six more children, six boys. Their names are listed in Chronicles and in Genesis. There may have been snow on the roof, but there was fire in the furnace. God, God, God regenerated this guy. And so those children were not the recipients of this chosen nation. It was the son of promise that are regarded as the descendants. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. And he quotes Genesis 18, verse 10 that we just read. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So it is not the natural children, the literal physical descendants of Abraham, but it's the son of promise by whom the Messiah is going to come. Now we'll see next time that Isaac and Rebekah had twins, Jacob and Esau. And Esau as the firstborn should have been chosen, but God chose Jacob. And Ishmael, the firstborn, should have been chosen, but God chose Isaac. Why? Because God is sovereign and God knows what he is about. Now, we've just cracked the door, but let's make some application this morning, all right? Three applications. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. So there's some lessons that we can learn that we can apply from this passage of Scripture. Number one, I learned that God in electing Israel, their unbelief does not mean He has abandoned Israel. God in electing Israel, choosing them to be the nation of the world, to be his chosen people, their unbelief does not mean that he's abandoned them. Why? Because he is a promise-keeping God. Now, one of the reasons I took the time to go through those passages in Genesis to underscore the unconditional nature of this covenant is because the way you understand God's dealing with the nation of Israel will cause you to accordingly approach Romans chapter 9. Now, the man who came up with the idea that God chose some people to go to heaven and some to go to hell was a man named St. Augustine. He lived 430, or he died in 430 AD. He was a, if I can use the term, a staunch Calvinist, though Calvin, of course, comes over a thousand years later in 1509. But St. Augustine is considered the father of predestination. And St. Augustine believed that God was done with the Jewish people because they had rejected 
their Messiah. Now understand, there are some covenants, and we looked at some, if you were here last time, you might want to go home and listen to that message. There are some covenants that God made with the people of Israel that were conditional in nature, just like today. There are some promises in the New Testament that are conditioned on a response that you have to make. For instance, if my word abides in you and you abide in me, ask whatever you wish it will done, be done for you. That's a conditional promise. There are other promises in the word of God that are unconditional in nature. God's going to do it no matter what. Every person in this room saved or lost someday is going to be raised up, either into a body suited for heaven or a body suited for heaven. That is hell. That is an unconditional promise. God is going to fulfill it. But St. Augustine took some of the passages that were conditional in nature and he applied it to the Abrahamic covenant. But he should not have. And so he viewed the Jewish people in a very negative light. And if you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. or in Israel, and I've been to both, it's embarrassing to see the quotations that are on the walls by St. Augustine, Luther, and Calvin. St. Augustine said this in his work called Confessions. He said, how hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture. How I wish that you would slay them, the Jews, with your two-edged sword so that there should be none to oppose your word. Gladly would I have them die to themselves and live to you. Now again, Augustine, you're going to meet him in heaven someday. And some would argue from a later commentary he wrote on Psalm 59 that he argued they shouldn't be killed, but uh, they should be left alive as an example of unbelief. But you read, and I could have read many more quotations by him, and they are embarrassing. Some of the things that he said about the Jewish people. And he had adopted some views that were later embraced in Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church said, and they still teach it, they taught it in Vatican I in response to Luther's 95 Theses. They reaffirmed it at Vatican I and Vatican II that they are the chosen people, that God is done with the people of Israel that the one true people of God now is the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, St. Augustine had a lot of interesting doctrines that Roman Catholics ended up adopting, that being one of them. Of course, Augustine would have looked at it differently, that not this organization, but those true believers are the new Israel, so to speak. He believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary, and the Catholic Church ended up adopting that. He believed in a large number of sacraments as they ended up believing in that. Later on, you have two men, Martin Luther and John Calvin, who come out of Catholicism. Now, the reformers get a lot of press, as I told you before, because they are part of the institutionalized church. But apart from the Roman church, there were always fellowships of born-again believers who had nothing to do with Catholicism, and they weren't protesting Rome because they weren't a part of Rome. But you had men like Martin Luther and John Calvin who are in the midst of Catholicism. They see the abuses that are there and it causes them to go to the scripture and to read it and they learn the true way of salvation. But they end up adopting a lot of Catholic dogmas because they're so close to it, and they just put a different spin on it. So for Martin Luther and John Calvin, yes, God is done with the nation of Israel. The Jews have no significance at all today. And this is typically what we would call today even Reformed theology. And so one leader in Reformed theology recently said, I have no desire to go to Israel. No desire at all. I'm not going there, plan never to go there. Why do you say that? Because he doesn't think there's any significance for the people of Israel and for that piece of property. 
Augustine, although a great saint, had some views of the Jews that were way off base. Fortunately, later in his life, he softened his position. Nevertheless, God's word clearly states that the Israelites are his chosen people. We'll find out more about that tomorrow. If you would like to listen again, simply use the Search the Scriptures app available for smartphones and tablets, or navigate online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also have a CD or DVD copy mailed to you by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and for today's program, request number ROM45. Perhaps you have a question you'd like to ask Dr. Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to it online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we conclude our message, Predestined to Hell. Join us then as we search the scriptures.